Well, as you know, we are uh, doing this series in the midst of very unprecedented times, in the midst of a worldwide viral pandemic. And uh, we have had some good news in recent weeks here in uh, the Fredericton and here in our province of New Brunswick, and we're very thankful. But uh, our new normal uh, still feels pretty invasive and, and pretty restrictive. So uh, that's still part of our lives and will be for some time to come. And uh, social distancing is still in force, so we can't gather here in our church building. And when we are around other people, we have to stay six feet apart. And a face mask is becoming a new reality. And don't touch each other and don't shake hands anymore. And it's really strange. And as I've said before, those uh, restrictions are kind of difficult for us to manage because we are, first of all, very social people, but especially when we're part of something so wonderful as the family of God, we really draw strength from each other in our interactions. And so right now we're separated, we're isolated. And as the title of our series suggests, we're scattered. And that wasn't strange to the people that Peter was writing to 2,000 years ago. In fact, he started his epistle with these words, to the strangers scattered. All throughout the provinces of Asia Minor, uh, they were distanced, they were scattered. And uh, they had no opportunity for close fellowship. They didn't have Facebook and FaceTime and all of the things that we use, even in this time of social distancing, to keep in touch and to keep in contact. So in many ways, even in these strange, unprecedented times when we feel so isolated, in many ways we're probably still closer together than they were thanks to the conveniences of, of modern technology. They were basically connected 2,000 years ago only by letters like this one that tied them to other churches because Peter and other apostles and leaders like him, they would write these letters and they would be passed around and taken from church to church and they would be read in the congregations, small though they were, and it would bring words of encouragement. Now that encouragement was especially important because so many of these first century believers, they had experienced suffering. Many of them had experienced outright persecution because of their faith. At the end of chapter 3, where we ended last week, Peter reminded them that Jesus is our ultimate example when it comes to facing suffering. And Jesus, of course, paid the ultimate price for our salvation through his suffering on the cross of Calvary, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then Peter, at the end of chapter 3, it was wonderful, uh, Peter got sidetracked on baptism for just a moment. Because baptism, of course, in the New Testament is so very, very important. And he noted right at the end of chapter 3, it's like he took a, a little rabbit trail, a little detour, because um, he, he just couldn't help himself. He was the day of Pentecost preacher. He was the first one who ever stood up at a church service and declared that everyone needs to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then he gave the promise, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So at the end of chapter 3, Peter noted that just as Noah and his family in the days of the flood, they were saved by water. That's Peter's phrase. He says, so even baptism doth also now save us. That's how important baptism is. It's part of our obedience to the gospel. It's part of God's salvation plan for us. 
It's amazing. And that was right at the end of last week's lesson. And before I went to bed that night, we had already had uh, two wonderful ladies, uh, one from Montreal, one from uh, Portland, Oregon, that had touched base with us, wanting to be baptized in Jesus' name. And as uh, I, I mentioned on Sunday, um, Within 24 hours, that sweet lady in Montreal, a young lady, she had already been baptized by our friend, Pastor Cahosey, and we're so thankful for what God is doing, and I can't help it. If, if you need to be baptized in Jesus' name, if you've never had that experience, and if you've asked God to come into your life and forgive you of your sins, baptism in Jesus' name is your next step. And we are 24-7 when it comes to baptism. We will help you obey the gospel anytime, day or night. And if you don't live here where we live, we'll find an apostolic preacher somewhere near you and, and they'll baptize you in Jesus' name. It's such a beautiful and wonderful experience. Now that's where Peter ended in chapter 3. But now he returns to the theme of suffering as he had been talking about as we open chapter 4. This is verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself. It's like you're taking fortification or armor on. Arm yourself likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Jesus is our pattern, and Jesus is the one who suffered on our behalf. That's not only referring to his agony on the cross. It's also referring to the suffering Jesus experienced throughout his entire life while he was in the flesh, while he was in, robed in flesh, in a body, living a life like you and I. During his life, Jesus was persecuted and reviled and rejected in many ways long before Calvary happened. And he also suffered temptation during his 40 days in the wilderness. But in every season of suffering, Jesus was victorious. Why? Because he was armed with a militant mindset against sin. Jesus loved everyone. Jesus, he held children. Jesus, he loved and ministered to people. But Jesus had a militant mindset against sin. And you see it throughout his life, but you see it especially at the end of those 40 days in the wilderness. I will defeat sin. Sin will not defeat me. That was his mindset. Jesus went through everything that we go through. He is our pattern. So if we want to be victorious over sin... Peter says we need that same mindset. We need to arm ourselves with that same mindset. I will defeat sin. Sin will not defeat me. And we need to be militant about it. Uh, we, we need to insist on it. Now what does Peter mean when he continues and says, He that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Now, he can't mean that suffering all by itself stops us from sinning because you and I both know some people that they backslide and leave God and leave faith when life gets hard for them. So suffering by itself does not help us to cease from sinning. What Peter's saying here is what he just told us about Jesus and his mindset, his attitude. Peter's saying that when we go through suffering with 
the right attitude, with the same mind that Jesus had, then that time of testing will wean us from sin and wean us away from selfishness and it will literally make us into the image of Christ. It is a process. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in a week. It's a process. That's what Peter means when he says the rest of his time. It's going to take the rest of your life for this process to work in you. You grow every day in God. It's a process that changes our desires. And we come to a point where we no longer want our own way, but we only want his will in our lives. What a beautiful way to live. But please remember, your attitude during suffering is not automatic. Your attitude is not automatic. You have to choose to go through suffering with the same attitude that Jesus had. So you could write it down like a little equation. Suffering plus the mind of Christ equals victory over sin. Suffering plus the mind of Christ equals victory over sin. In other words, when we go through things, we've got to learn to see our situation through the eyes and through the lens of Scripture. Peter continues to say this in verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, and they speak evil of you. You see, in our past lives, we were certainly not interested in suffering for the Lord. In fact, we ran from God, and we ran to the world. And many of us remember those days. We were controlled by things like what Peter lists here. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a convicting list. We were controlled by lasciviousness. That means a life lived with absolutely no restraint, loose living. We were controlled by lust, forbidden longings that uh, bound us and, and addicted us and got us into trouble and ruined relationships. We, we were bound by excess of wine, drunkenness, or, or drug abuse for so many people. We were bound by revelings. That's a wasteful extravagance, just a, a party type of lifestyle. And he, he, he uh, twins that with banquetings, which is wild parties where all kinds of debauchery and immorality happens. That's what we were. And he, he ends the list by saying, and we were also bound with abominable idolatries. We were slaves to sin. Everything the world suggested, we thought we needed to do it. Everything our flesh desired, everything our flesh came across as a temptation, we thought we might as well try it. That's who we were. But let me emphatically say on behalf of the believers and our CCC family, all of you that are listening to me right now, for us, that season of sin is over. And that season of sin hurt us. We don't want to go back there. That season of sin was enough. We've already done in our little lives enough people-pleasing and enough flesh-pleasing to last a lifetime. So we have no desire to go back to those things in the world that hurt us. Now, every believer, everybody listen to me, especially those of you that are new to serving God, you're new to the CCC family, you're new to this whole relationship with the scripture. 
Every new believer has felt this tension. It's a tension between your new life and your old friends. When you begin to serve God, oh boy, that tension, it hits like a bomb goes off in your life. It's a tension. It's something that just never goes away. It's a tension between your new life and your old friends. You see, your old friends, they don't understand the new life that is now in you. And they think it very strange that you have totally changed your life and totally changed your lifestyle. They can't understand that. And so they come to you. Many of you have experienced this. Maybe somebody's experienced this in the last week. They come to you and they invite you to do things that you used to do, but you don't have any desire to do them anymore. They come to you and they ask you to go places and do things that you know that that might be a slight temptation, but I know how that messed me up. I know how I almost lost my family. I know how I almost lost my health or lost my mind because I was so bound. And when you refuse to run with that old crowd anymore, Peter said they begin speaking evil of you. And that hurts. It hurts when they reject you. And it hurts when they reject your Jesus. And it hurts when they reject your new life. And it hurts when they reject the gospel that saved you and changed you. But Peter said, even that suffering, even that rejection, even that opposition, listen, it's good for you if your attitude remains right when even your friends or your family are opposing you. Verse 5. He said, you don't need to worry about them because they shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. It's a little bit of a theological tongue twister, so let's unpack that. Peter's saying, don't ever get too concerned about the attitude of the world toward you for two reasons. Number one, it's inconsequential. It doesn't matter what they think. And secondly, it's temporary. You're not living to please them anymore. You're now living to please an audience of one, and that is your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ. They may be judging you now, Peter said, but one day God will judge them. He's going to judge everyone. So considering that reality, we should be confident and we should be compassionate. We should be confident because the final judgment doesn't come from your friends or your family or the world or your employer or your co-workers or your fellow students. We can be confident because the final judgment on our lives doesn't come from them. It comes from God. But we should also be compassionate because we may be their only hope of hearing the gospel. The people that mock and malign and misunderstand you and sometimes misuse you, you may be their only hope of hearing the gospel so their lives can change and so they can go to heaven. After all, we don't get too judgmental about sin and sinners in the lives of people because you used to live that way. I used to live that way. You used to think that Christians 
were a little bit strange, didn't you? So even though you don't agree with their lifestyle, even though you no longer participate in their sin, please hear me. Your connection with lost people is critical. It's not a good thing when we get saved and we isolate in the church. Think how much we detest social isolation. Think how much we detest self-quarantine right now. We don't like it. It chafes against us. It's not natural. Can I say to you, it's not natural either when we get saved and then we quarantine ourselves in our buildings, in our lifestyle, among our new friends, away from everybody that needs the gospel most. Even Jesus told the story about the one lost sheep. 99 in the fold. They didn't need rescued, but there was still one out there. And so just as much as we detest social distancing right now, we don't need to socially distance from everybody that doesn't live like you live and love Jesus like you love Jesus and attend church like you attend church. If anybody in your circle of influence needs you, it's those people. Don't distance yourself from them. You may be their only connection to the gospel. Your connection with lost people is critical. And we sometimes say this around the Pentecostal church. We say we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We're in, but we're not of. Well, that's a good statement and a great concept. But I think it's pointed in the wrong direction because some people interpret that statement wrongly. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're in, but not of. And they interpret it to, to, and, and they almost feel like the goal of the church is isolation. When the goal of the church is not isolation, the goal of the church is evangelism. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So while I agree with that concept and that statement, and we said it around Pentecost for years, we're in the world, but not of the world. We're in, but we're not of. It would be better if we could flip that statement end for end, it doesn't change it. It just points it in the right direction. And if we could say, we are not of the world, but we are sent into the world. That's really how that statement should go. We are not of, but we're sent into. We are not of the world, but we are sent into the world. Think about it. An ambassador is not of that other country where he or she resides. But they are sent into that country. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God, it's as though we're standing in the stead of God. As though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. We stand in his place as his ambassadors. And we're saying to the world, oh, you need to be reconciled to God. You need to have a relationship with Jesus. We are ambassadors. We are not of this world, but we are sent into this world to be ambassadors for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. So please... Be patient with your unsaved family members and friends because in so many ways, scripturally speaking, sinners are victims. They are blind to the truth. They are deaf to the gospel. They are dead in sin. They are distant 
from God. They are trapped by the devil. And they are only hurting themselves. No wonder sometimes they are miserable. No wonder sometimes they push back at you and they attack you. But please don't argue with them. Pray for them. Don't fight over scripture. Don't fight over salvation. Don't win arguments and lose influence. Don't argue with them. Pray for them. Here's what Paul said to that young pastor that he mentored named Timothy. He said, Timothy, the servant of the Lord must not strive. Don't argue with people, Timothy. Don't, don't win doctrinal debates with them. That's not what's important up front. Not at all. The servant of the Lord must not strive. But he must be gentle unto all men, even those that are opposing you. Be gentle unto all men, apt to teach. Teach them the word. And you teach them the word best by being an example of the word. Teach all men, apt to teach. Be patient with them, Timothy. And then he says this, in meekness, you be humble, Timothy, just because the gospel came to you first. Just because God changed your life and he hasn't changed their life yet because they haven't accepted him. Don't you get proud. Don't you get stuck up about it. In meekness, you instruct those that oppose themselves. What a picture of a sinner. No matter how successful they may be in this world, they are opposing themselves. And he said, Timothy, the reason we do all this, the reason we're meek and gentle and we're apt to teach and we're patient with them, the reason we do this is we're praying that God, peradventure, will give them repentance and they will acknowledge the truth. And here's what will happen if they acknowledge the truth. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. Because right now, they are taken captive by him at his will. Right now, they're prisoners. Right now, the devil controls them. Right now, they're a puppet of the evil one. But we have a gospel message that can recover them out of the snare and the trap of the devil. That's worth working for. That's worth being patient. That's worth being meek and kind and gentle. That's worth reaching for people. Because we have the message that can change their lives, their homes, their families. Peter continues in verse 5, he says, Who shall give account, these people, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. All of those people that you go to work with, all those people in your neighborhood, all of those family members, all of those loved ones, someday they're going to stand before God and they're going to give account to the one who's ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause, because the stakes are so high and because eternity is far too long to be wrong, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. He's not talking about the gospel being preached beyond the grave, in the tomb, in the spirit realm. No, he's talking about there were people. You know them. They used to live here. They used to be our family members and our loved ones and our friends. And the gospel was preached unto them. But now they're dead. Now they're gone. And while they lived here on this earth, watch what he says. They were judged according to men in the flesh. We had some precious elders in this church that have gone on to glory. And some of their family mocked them to their face. Some of their friends turned against them when they came into this weird Pentecostal church. They were judged by men 
in the flesh when they lived here. They're gone to glory now. But guess what? They live according to God in the Spirit. Some of the believers in Peter's day, when he says them that are dead, they're now dead. They were actually martyred for their faith. But the gospel, the soul-saving, life-changing gospel had been preached to them while they were alive. And they had been born again. So although they were judged unfairly and killed by men on earth, their suffering was not in vain. Peter said, now they live forever in heaven. And all that matters in heaven is not the judgment of the world or the pressure of your peers. All that matters in heaven is God's judgment. God has the final word on every life. In verse 7 he says, but the end of all things is at hand. We're coming close to the end. We're coming close to this whole arrangement being folded up and all over. The end of all things is at hand. And he said, here's how you need to live in light of that truth. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Don't, don't ever get too concerned about the attitude of the world toward you because it's inconsequential. God is going to be the final judge. And it's also temporary. Jesus is coming. And the end of all things is almost here. Now it's very obvious from a, just a cursory, basic reading of the New Testament that the Christians in the early church, they expected Jesus to come and to return in their lifetime. And that gave them strength to live the way they lived and to endure what they endured. No matter what interpretation we may give to the prophecies of the Bible, we must all live in expectancy of Jesus' second coming because it will happen. I had a unique experience. I was uh, preaching at a church pastored by one of my friends and a great man of God. And that night I had mentioned to him that I was feeling to preach on uh, prophecy uh, about the end times. And uh, just before, uh, we were actually already at the church that night, and just before we went out to, to head into service, he just mentioned to me, he said, now I see prophecy different than you. Uh, I, I think we're going to be here on this earth a little bit longer than you do. I, I think we're not going to be raptured before the tribulation period, but after the tribulation period. Well, that doesn't divide us from fellowship. That's just a difference on a, a disputable matter in Scripture, there's all kinds of opinions. But here I was about ready to go out, and the way I believe it and see it in Scripture, Jesus could come at any moment. Jesus could come any hour, any day. Jesus could come right now. Jesus could come before you finish watching the webcast tonight. That's how I see it in Scripture. And uh, I was in a little bit of a quandary. He went on ahead to do a couple of things, and I just stopped there in the office for a moment, and I said, you know, Jesus, you got to help me here because this is what I feel, and this is what I believe, and I would never take advantage of another man's pulpit and teach something or preach something in his church that would cause confusion. I would never do that. So what do I do? And the Lord spoke clearly to me. I went to the pulpit that night, and I preached. We had a powerful move of God. And I preached everything that I wanted to preach. 
and everything that I felt to preach. But when I got to this part, that Jesus could come at any moment. Jesus could come before we expect it. I stopped and I said this. How many of you have ever said, it seems just like yesterday that my kids were babies. It seems just like yesterday that I was a single college student. It seems just like yesterday that I was in high school. It seems just like yesterday that we got married or we had our first child. It seems just like yesterday. You see, life rockets by so fast that years and decades can pass. And we look back and it's just like, it, where did it go? And so I said to that church that night, and I would say to you tonight, if it's true that Jesus isn't coming for another seven years, another 10 years, another 20 years, let me please say this to you. 20 years goes by just like that. And we can look back and say, where did the time go? So we definitely, even if Jesus is delaying his coming for two or three decades, we do not need to just sit around and not be concerned about that because life passes by in a flash and you want to be living that life to please him because that is all that matters. So Jesus is coming soon. If you think it's going to be another seven years before he gets here because we've got to face the great tribulation, that's fine. But seven years, he's coming soon. Ten years, he's coming soon. Even 20 years, he's coming so soon. 20 years comes at us like a freight train and you've got to be ready. But you don't want to just get ready at the last minute. You want to live a life serving God so you have a reward in heaven. Preachers have different opinions. Prophecy teachers have different opinions, but no matter what opinion you, sh you have or you share about the prophecies of the Bible, every Christian must live their life in expectancy of Jesus' second coming because it will happen. Preachers have different opinions on the timing of his return, but don't ever let that cause you to lose sight of the reality of his return. Jesus is coming. We have to live every day. The early church did. The, the New Testament Christians did. The reality was ever in their mind. Jesus could come today. And here's why. Because how we live on this day, it will determine how we are judged on that day. Now just how do you live in expectancy, Peter? Here's what he says. First of all, be sober. That means be self-controlled. Be discreet about the activities and the things you involve yourself in. Be sober-minded. Be intentional about what you do with your one and only life. Be sober. Then he says, be prayerful. Watch unto prayer is his phrase. He means stay awake and stay alert in the spirit. Don't let the world lull you to sleep. Don't let life and busyness lull you to sleep. Stay awake. Watch unto prayer. Be alert in the spirit. Keep a prayerful spirit. Then he says, be loving, have fervent charity one toward another. And when he says fervent charity, that word's a very strong one, fervent. He means an intensity of charity, an intensity of love one toward another. We're not reluctant or slow to love each other, to express our kindness and, our, and grace one toward another. Fervent charity. Fervent means eagerness of attitude. We're not waiting to see if you do it first and then I might recompense or I might reciprocate. 
No, no. It's fervent charity. I'm eager to love the body of Christ, my brothers and sisters, and I'm eager for that. I'm, I'm loving. And he says this. This is a strange statement for some of us. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. He's actually saying be forgiving. Love doesn't condone sin. Don't misunderstand what Peter's saying. Love doesn't just gloss over sin. Love doesn't condone sin, but it does cover sin. In other words, when somebody falls or fails, they're weak, they struggle. Our first impulse is not, please hear me tonight. Our first impulse when we hear about that is not to tell several other people. And I know we've got all the Pentecostal code down. We just tell them, I just want you to pray about it. That's garbage. That's gossip. You don't want them to pray about it. You just want to be the first to spread the news that you know something that they don't. That's gossip. That's not a spirit of prayer. And that's definitely not love. He said, love, charity shall cover the multitude of sins. The impulse of a child of God when they hear about the failure, the mistake of somebody else is not gotcha. It's not, I got to go tell somebody. It's not, what do they think they're doing? The first impulse is, oh no, they need forgiveness. God, please draw them close to you. Please forgive them, Jesus. Love doesn't condone sin, but it does cover the multitude of sins. It doesn't spread the news. It goes into the secret closet of prayer and calls their name before the throne of God. And if you've got something to say about the matter, you make sure you say it to that person who made the mistake and you make sure you're expressing fervent love toward them and that that love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't publicize it. Just how do you live in expectancy, Peter? Well, that's the list. Living in expectancy is kind of the same as the way a pregnant mother lives. She lives in expectancy. She lives carefully because there's a new life within her and because she knows there's a day of deliverance coming and I want this baby to be healthy. We live in expectancy, brothers and sisters. We live carefully because there's new life inside of us and because that great day called the rapture is coming, our day of deliverance. Peter continues in verse 10 and he said, as every man hath received the gift, remember he's talking about how we interact with each other in the body of Christ, how we get through trouble and suffering and even mistakes together. He says, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Let him be anointed and have a word from God. If any man minister, if somebody serves, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. Why do we do it that way? Why are we so conscious? Oh God, anoint my speaking. Oh God, anoint my ministry, my efforts. Why? That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has placed various gifts in his body. And all of these gifts, every single one of them, operate through people. They operate through humanity. And that's where conflict can arise because we're only human and we make mistakes. There are natural abilities that we have 
And there are supernatural abilities within the body of Christ. And every single one of those is a gift of God. The reason I'm able to teach you tonight is because we have people on our team that have technical skills with regard to internet and technology. And those aren't mentioned in the Bible. They're not the gifts of the Spirit. But they are beautiful gifts to the church. You see, whether it's a natural ability that's anointed by God, or whether it's a supernatural ability that's anointed by God, it can be a blessing to a church. There are precious people in our congregation that have served for years in various roles. They may never have given a word of prophecy or even a message in tongues or anything like that, what we would call the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. But they've used their gifts, natural abilities anointed by God, to be a blessing to the church. I got my start years ago uh, in music ministry. And I joke with people now. I say, you know, if we ever hit one of those old, old, old songs that predates the hymn book, the music team will wheel me out of my wheelchair with my oxygen tank strapped on and put my old arthritic hands on the keyboard and I'll try to bang out that song. That doesn't happen. I'm just joking. But I remember in music... I would have people come to me, and I know our music team has had this said to them so many hundreds of times. God moved through that song tonight. There was such an anointing when you sang or when you played tonight. Those aren't supernatural gifts. They are natural abilities anointed by the Spirit of God. And whether you're used to give a word of prophecy or whether you're used to clean the church or teach children or greet visitors. It's all the same. Gifts given to the body of Christ by Jesus. There are natural abilities and there are supernatural abilities within the body, but they are all gifts from God. And Peter says we're to be good stewards. We're to be good managers of our gifts. And we're to be good stewards and use our various abilities, our manifold grace that God has given us. We're to use our various abilities to benefit the body. So if you're going to speak, you let God anoint you to be his voice. If you're going to serve, you let God anoint you to be his hands. Whatever you do with your abilities, make sure of two things, that it glorifies God and that it blesses the body. How beautiful that is. Now Peter just kind of shifts gears very easily in verse 12, and he comes back to this overarching theme of this epistle. These people are being persecuted. Some of them have been martyred and lost their lives for the gospel, and they're all going through strange and tumultuous times. So in verse 12 he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But in contrast to that fear or panic, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when he, when his glory shall be revealed, at that day, in that moment, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now every Christian, every single one of us, every one of you that are watching Every Christian will experience a certain amount of suffering in their lives. That's just part of life. 
and even persecution sometimes because there will always be people who resist the truth, despise the saints of God, and oppose the gospel. So if I can say it this way, this is normal individual suffering. And Peter addressed normal suffering, everyday suffering that we all feel and we all experience. He's already addressed that earlier in this letter. But now Peter warns this church about a more intense kind of persecution. He warns these believers scattered in many places in many different tiny congregations all throughout the provinces of Asia Minor. He warns them about a more intense kind of persecution. He calls it a fiery trial. And when this hits, it's going to impact the entire church at the same time. It's a fiery trial. Everybody's going to feel it. Now in their case, obviously from history we know that would be the official persecution from the Roman Emperor Nero. In fact, it was Nero, tradition says, that put both Paul and Peter to death in this wave of persecution that hit in about the mid-A.D. 60s. Now, while that kind of persecution might seem foreign to us, many of our brothers and sisters, pastors and leaders in other countries have experienced that very same kind of suffering, persecution, even martyrdom in modern times. And the same principles that Peter gave 2,000 years ago in his situation will still help us and still guide us today. Now you remember that Peter began this whole letter by addressing these believers as strangers scattered. They are kind of like resident aliens. They live temporarily in a country that is not their own. They're citizens of heaven, so they could never be permanent residents of earth. And precisely because they are strangers in this world, Peter warns them, you're strangers, so you're going to be considered strange. You're going to be considered peculiar in the world's eyes because you have different values. You have different standards. You live an entirely different lifestyle. You're strangers here, and you're going to be considered strange here. And of course, Peter had learned that from Jesus himself. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper. This is after the crowds had, had left and after the, the Jewish religious leaders had turned against him. And, and there's a, a lot of tension and rumors floating around about the Nazarene. And the disciples are seeing the handwriting on the wall. They know that it's not going to be too long before this all explodes and blows up in their face. And Jesus is going to bear the brunt of being such a popular prophet in Israel. And they can feel the tension. And here's what Jesus tells them that last night at the Last Supper. This is after things turned against him. John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, oh, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, and I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with the world. They hate you because they hate me. And the very last statement that he made to his disciples just moments before they left that last supper and headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and of course that's where Jesus was arrested and, and all the events set in motion leading up to Calvary. 
the last statement he said to his disciples in that last supper, just before they left the room, just before they headed to the Garden of Gethsemane and onward to Calvary, here's what he said to them. John 16, These things I have spoken unto you. Here's why I took the time and I, I mentioned all of these things to you. That in me, you might have peace. No matter what happens, no matter what breaks down, no matter what comes against you, no matter what you encounter, that in me, you might have peace. In this world, you shall have tribulation. It's going to get bad sometimes. Things may get worse before they get eternally better. You shall have tribulation, but... In the face of all of that opposition, persecution, suffering, pain, sadness, sickness, trial, you be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Those were the very last words that Jesus said to his disciples just before they headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that lets us know two things, brothers and sisters. Number one, tribulation, persecution, trial, suffering, Pain, that will all be part of our lives. That's the first thing we know. But the second thing we know is greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In this world, you will have tribulation. You mark it down. You're going to face problems and sickness and sadness and trials. But you be of good cheer because the God you serve, he has overcome this world. Peter said, so, so don't think it's strange if you're going through a terrible trial right now. Remember that in the end, we win. We may win here. Our prayer may get answered here. The situation may turn around here. We may win here or we may win over there. But either way, saints of God, we win. <laughs> and that's why Peter tells us you rejoice when you experience suffering. That seems counterintuitive, I got to tell you. That seems really odd. He said, you rejoice when you experience suffering because that simply means you're going to have a greater reward when Jesus returns. You're going to rejoice with exceeding joy on that day. Now, some difficulties in life, let, let's just break it down and be real honest for a second. Some difficulties in life are simply the result of sin's curse. And everyone experiences them. Everybody's going to have a cold or a flu once in a while. Everybody is going to have sickness or pain. People break bones. People have car accidents. People get sick and go to the hospital. That's the result of sin's curse. Everybody is eventually going to die. The results of sin's curse. So some difficulties in life, they're universal. They're simply the result of living in a sin-sick, sin-cursed world. Everybody experiences those. Other difficulties, however... They're the result of our own disobedience and sin. And we bring some of our own difficulties and some of our own problems and trials and consequences upon ourselves. But the fiery trial that Peter's talking about here, it's actually the opposite of that. This fiery trial is the result of people who are faithful to God. They're the good guys. They live for God faithfully. And this fiery trial isn't caused by their mistakes or their sin. It's caused by the attack of the devil. But this is where the devil fails every time. 
You got to remember this. Even though God didn't cause the trial, God can use the trial. That doesn't mean that doesn't matter whether the trial comes from everyday life, your circumstances, whether it comes from your mistake or your sin in the past that you've repented of, or whether it comes from an all-out assault of hell on your life. It doesn't matter because even though God didn't cause the trial you're in, he can use the trial for your benefit. In fact, the reason Peter describes this kind of suffering as a fiery trial is because fire is a refining process in the scripture. See, we don't have to just go through a trial and try to hang on till we get out the other side. We don't have to just go through a trial. We can grow through a trial. We can grow up in God during our times of suffering. It was Paul who prayed these words from a Roman prison cell. He prayed this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, and that I might be made conformable unto his death. People say, oh my goodness, Paul, you've got a death wish. No, no, that's not a death wish. That's a life wish. Paul's prayer is that he would experience Jesus in such a way that whether he was seeing miracles, the power of his resurrection, or whether he was seeing trials, the fellowship of his suffering, whether it was miracles or whether it was trials, my prayer is that I would know Jesus and that I would become like Jesus. And that should be our prayer as well, no matter what we happen to be facing. We know from Scripture, from the opening pages of the Word of God, that whatever pleases God is going to anger the enemy. And that's why the devil attacks. So for believers, suffering and persecution and attacks from hell, that's not a strange thing for us. The absence of satanic opposition. Now that would be strange. If the devil's not fighting you, you're probably not doing much for God. You, you may have kind of slipped into a backslidden state. If you're really trying to live for God and you're really praying and you're really trying to obey his word, the devil doesn't like that. He's going to attack you. So the absence of any problems in your life, that would be a cause for concern that there's no spiritual opposition to what you're doing. Let's go back to Peter's writing in verse 14. He said, so if you are reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. That, well, we didn't see that one coming. We, we thought, you'll be crying, you'll be sad. No, Peter said, no, you'll be happy if you're reproached for the name of Christ. For the, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you in those situations. Now, on their part, on the people in the world that the devil is maybe using to oppose you, on their part, Jesus is being evil spoken of. They're attacking you because you love him. But on your part, your life is given glory to God. On your part, he's glorified. Now, he said this a couple of times before in this very letter. He wants to make sure that people don't just kind of slide into some mode of thinking like everything that I experience that's negative in my life, that's the devil. Because sometimes we create our own issues. So he says this, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yes, busybody is a Bible word and it's not a good one. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Peter emphatically says here, 
If you're being persecuted for being, if you're being persecuted by the world for being a Christian, be happy about it. Why in the world would we be happy when we're facing such intense opposition? Why? Because that's the very moment, Peter said, that God's glory is resting on you. And that's the very moment that God's glory is revealed in you. When you're walking through the worst kind of trial you can imagine and you don't like it and it's not kind to you and you would never wish it on your worst enemy and you never want to go through this season again but you're still worshiping God in the midst of that trial, let me tell you something. You may be in pain right now but God's glory is resting on you. You might be suffering right now but God's glory is being revealed in you and your testimony in the time of trial is doing great things for the kingdom of God even though you may not see it right now. Your testimony is never more effective than when you are faithful to God in the midst of a trial. Peter said, but let's be honest. On the other hand, if you're suffering because you broke the law, if you're suffering because you got angry at somebody or you mistreated others, or because you've simply been a gossip or a meddler in all of their business, something that was none of your business, if that's why you're suffering, because somebody's pushing back against what you did, that's not God's fault, that's your fault. And you are bearing the consequences of your own sinful actions. There is no reward for that kind of suffering. Can I say this to you? Before you try to pray your way out of that situation, maybe try apologizing your way out of that situation. And no, I don't mean apologizing to God. Maybe before you try to pray your way out of a situation that started in your home or in your marriage or in a relationship because you were angry and you were cutting and cruel and argumentative, maybe before you try to pray to God and get out of that, maybe you could just try this. Apologize. Make it right. That's a better, quicker way to get out of one of those things because you caused that issue. Every time we are reproached for the name of Christ, Peter said, he's evil spoken of. People are criticizing you for being a Christian. Every time we're reproached for the name of Christ, well, that gives us an opportunity to bring glory to his name. He is glorified in our lives because we are a Christian. This word that we throw around so commonly and so frequently today, the word Christian, it's only found three times in the entire New Testament. It's found here in 1 Peter 4 and verse 16. It's found in Acts eleven twenty six when it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It's found in Acts 26, verse 28, when Agrippa said to Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. That's the only three times in the New Testament that the word Christian is found. That name was originally given by the enemies of the church it was a, a, a word that they used in mockery. It was a term of reproach. But those early Christians, even though that was thrown at them as mockery, they took that word and they began to wear it and adopt it as a badge of honor. Because the word Christian means little Christ. A Christ one. Belonging to Christ. The world threw that word around as a mockery. You're just a little Christ. But the Christians said, yes, that's the ultimate goal of my life, is to be a little image of Jesus here on this earth. It is a privilege to bear his name. So our fiery trial is a refining process. 
And during a fiery trial, God removes the dross and he purifies us. Dross is a, a, a term that comes from the smelting industry. It refers to the impurities and the waste and the worthless parts that come to the surface of molten metal when the heat, the fire is applied. And the comparison here is pretty obvious. Peter says, when trials apply fire to our lives and the heat is turned up, God has a purpose in that fire. He's refining you in the middle of your trial. Let's come to a close. We've got two or three more verses here, and I want to leave you with this. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if that judgment first begins with us who are saved, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous people like us that serve God and live for God have our sins forgiven, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? You see, someday a fiery judgment, Scripture says, is going to overtake the whole world. But in the meantime, God's judgment, his purifying fire, it must begin at the house of God. It must begin in the church as a whole. It must begin in each of us as individual believers. And I would say that that may be exactly what God's doing in this time of a viral pandemic in our world when he's all sent us home. He sent us all home to the secret place of prayer, to the secret place of discipleship. And we're coming face to face with what we really do and how we really act as a Christian and, and, and what our real spiritual disciplines are without the props and the crutches of church attendance and a pastor looking at your face three or four times a week and preaching to you. And now we've got to do all of that online and it's just our home version of Christianity. It could be that God's put his church in a fiery trial, in a purifying fire right now at this very time. God's refining fire ultimately brings glory in the lives of faithful believers, but it ultimately brings judgment in the lives of sinful unbelievers. So if we find God's judgment, his refining fire, trials and situations and persecution, if we find that difficult to bear right now, it's unbelievable to even try to comprehend the fate of the world on judgment day. We, our, our mind just, just we, we're revulsed by, by the possibility of an eternal lake of fire. We may experience the heat of persecution and suffering right now, but the lost are going to experience the flames of hell. So maybe, just maybe, we could stop feeling sorry for ourselves and feel sorry for them. Peter says, if the righteous scarcely be saved. Have you ever said to yourself, I, I, I don't even know if I can hardly make it through this trial. If the righteous scarcely be saved, if we even feel sometimes like, I don't know if I can make it, then what will be the fate of the ungodly and the sinner on that final day? It's going to be terrifying and horrifying. It's a frightening thought. In a later second letter to these same believers, these same uh, small churches scattered through Asia Minor, it's called 2 Peter, of course. In that second later letter, Peter would write these words, 2 Peter 3, verse 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, 
in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It's going to be horrifying and terrifying on that day. And God's refining fire will not just be in the lives of individual believers on that day. It will not just be in his church on that day. But there's a refining fire that is going to engulf the whole world on that day. And here's what Peter will later say as he writes a second epistle to these same believers. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Everything you've worked for, the house you live in, the car you drive, your career, your perks, your toys, your possessions. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. In light of that, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Your lifestyle should be holy and godly in light of the fact that all of this is going to be burned up. If you are suffering in the will of God, that's one thing. But don't suffer because you're outside of the will of God. Here's Peter's last verse in this chapter, and we'll close here tonight. Verse 19 says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God. You're faithful, you're, you're real, you're an authentic Christian, you're serving Jesus. You're sincere. And God knows your heart. So, so if you're suffering according to the will of God, Here's what you do. Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. If you're struggling right now, my brother and sister, if you're facing a trial, if you're in the midst of something that's so difficult and you feel the fire of that trial all around you, if you're suffering in the will of God, you can entrust yourself to the care of God. When Peter says, commit the keeping of your soul to him, commit is a banking term from the ancient world. It means you can deposit something for safekeeping. When you don't feel like you can stand, deposit your life in the grace of God and in the mercy of God and in the power of the Holy Ghost. Jesus, I don't know if I can keep myself through this day, but here's what I do know. If I deposit my life in your grace and in your power and in your promise, you can keep me through this day. I don't know if I can survive this week, Jesus. This trial is so intense and this pain, it's so awful and I don't know. I don't know if I can keep going, but I know if I deposit my life in your promise, you can keep me. I can safely reside in your promise. Let them that suffer in the will of God, you're faithful, you're serving Jesus. When you can't stand and when you can't take it, you deposit, you commit your soul, deposit yourself in his grace and in his promise because here's what I know about your Jesus. He is faithful. I want to pray with you before we go our separate ways tonight and I thank you for being part of Bible study. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word that Although this part of it was written 2,000 years ago, it feels like we're reading a letter that was written yesterday to help us through this week. Your word is so powerful. It's so strengthening. It's so encouraging. And right now, I pray for some brothers and sisters that are part of our church, and I pray for some of our friends that are watching this tonight. And Jesus I pray for them because some of them are experiencing persecution and opposition. They're experiencing mockery and mistreatment because they serve you. 
And Jesus, sometimes they get to a place where it's, it's like they, they don't know whether they can take it another day. They don't know whether they can take the rejection. They don't know whether they can take the loneliness. They don't know whether they can take the opposition. They don't know whether they can take the pain another day. And Jesus, I'm praying for my brothers and sisters tonight that you would give them the strength to one more time take their life, take their spirit, take their hurt, their pain, their questions, their doubt, and just deposit it all into your grace and rest on your promise. We don't have to get through the next week all at once. We don't have to get through the next month all at once. We just have to get through this life day after day, one day after another, living faithfully according to your word. And when you come, for all of those brothers and sisters of mine, your children that are struggling right now, there's going to be a great reward that's going to blow our mind. Jesus... I pray that you'd strengthen your people tonight. I pray that your Holy Spirit that I felt as I've taught, I pray that it would minister to them and give them strength for another day serving you. They haven't done something wrong. It's just the attack of the enemy. It's just the fiery trial of life right now. They're faithful to you. Jesus, minister to them tonight. I bless them in your name. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen.